Yeah, welcome to today's Bible study. We're starting right away. I just want to start off with um, a word of prayer and then we'll have some minutes of worship together. All right. Uh, so let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you. Thank you for the power of your spirit every time we gather. Thank you, Lord, for the mighty things you are doing in our midst. Oh, Father, we thank you for the testimonies that you are causing in the hearts of everyone, for the changes, for the uh, strength and stamina. Jesus, we bless your name. Lord, we ask that you guide us in today's um, session. Holy Spirit, teach us your word by yourself. I ask that you grant me utterance to speak the truth of your word in the name of Jesus Christ. Let every heart be touched by your spirit. Let every ear that hears this word, Lord, uh, receive illumination in their hearts in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for in Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. All right. So I want to start today in a very in a different way. Um, I want us to worship God for some minutes. And the song in our hearts that uh we would, you know, we used to worship is a song called Pour My Love. Many of us are already familiar with, with this, yeah. Um, but if you are not, um just you know listen in it's it's not a difficult song to learn all right so this is particular one is sung by um upper room uh so please just join in and worship worship for about five water from my heart I pour my love on 
us to spend um, a minute just praying the Holy Ghost wherever we are, uh, pour our love on, pouring our love on God and just exalting His holy name. we pour our love on you, Jesus. Aye kola ye maandali kamano si kabareki abranko teski gabasika lokori abashagane. Oh, we pour our love on you, Jesus. Akarosi kavanesile. Iarama sorono kiaba marante koria kola kumaragi anda gulaba sikondre mesizos karia kabashara batene. Oh, we pour our love on you, Jesus. Eh, yes, we pour our love on you. Marikona masia kabregunas kaparekoye. Kamprekonos kilaba sosukaleka. Ila papareka tilaba rosi venesula kino. Ronto koria kabrekotisko za sabrina kola manashila kapatuza ikana. Oh, Jesus, we worship you. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, we have worshipped. Father in heaven, we give you glory. We acknowledge the presence of your spirit with us uh, this moment. We thank you for your love that you have so lavishly bestowed upon us. For your word says, what manner of love has the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God? And now are we the children of God. We thank you. Oh, for, for making us your children. Your word says that no greater love can a man show to his friends than, dying, than laying his life down for his friends. And Lord, we thank you for laying your life down for us so that we are no longer called, we are not only called the friends of God, but we are now called the sons of God. Father, we say thank you. Thank you for bringing us into your kingdom by the expression of your love. We say thank you. Be praised and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. All right. Um, one more time, welcome to today's Bible study. And this is something we will do, you know, as a practice moving on by God's grace. Uh, we'll start off with worship and just to open our hearts up to the atmosphere of God. Because you see, Beyond the knowledge of scripture, if you don't have the atmosphere of the spirit, the knowledge will not mean so much to you. All right. And when we have the atmosphere of God's spirit, God's spirit present, you might be hearing something you've heard before, but it will be powerful and impactful in a different way. Uh, so I want us to, I know we are online, but I would love us to cultivate this practice of the the presence of God so that whatever we're discussing would have meaning and will have impact in the name of Jesus Christ. All right. So let's jump right in. Um, we're not spending much time today, you know, hopefully. We are continuing what we started last week. And the topic is the seven signs of a healthy spirit. Okay. The seven signs of a healthy spirit. And last week we explained why this is important for us to, uh, why this is important for us to study, all right? And we spent pretty much the whole of last week just looking at the importance of, of observing signs. Uh, but just by way of recap, it's, if you do not know the signs or the symptoms of a particular disease, you might, someone might end up, you know, losing their lives to that disease. Whereas it could have been treated, it could have been cured, it could have been prevented if they were able to observe the signs. I'll give you a practical um, story. I mean, not, not an adverse one, but personal story from my uh, my own life. Um, some years ago, several years ago, you know, I noticed a, what I now know to be a hole in my tooth. But then I didn't know, I didn't think about it, I think about it as anything. And the hole in my tooth 
you know, began to get worse up to the point, point where there was severe pain. But even the severe pain, I kept on managing it and just excusing it. Now, when I eventually got to see the dentist, it was too late. There was nothing they could do. They recommended extraction at that point. And I was a bit hesitant. I remember my, my doctor, um, I kept telling her what other alternatives because I didn't want to extract my, my tooth. But she kept on saying that based on what she has seen, based on all the checks she has done, the best thing to do now is to extract it so that it doesn't spread to other, to other teeth. And I said, you know, what else other options? She said, well, what they would have done before now is a, is a root canal treatment, an RCT. But at this stage, an RCT is very, might not necessarily do much. I said to her, you know what, still do the RCT like that. And out of pressure and, and you know, persistence, she agreed to do the RCT for me, which I did. But guess what? I still lost my tooth. My 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 tooth still broke away because it was too weak. It had really been um affected. I'm saying all this to say that if you can understand certain signs, you are able to prevent the worst from happening. Okay. And so I want to look at signs of a healthy spirit. I thought about this when um, um I thought about looking at it signs from the other other um aspect, signs of an unhealthy spirit. But I said, no, let's promote the healthy part, okay? So, but what I want you to do is to look at your life and see in all honesty, by the by the inspection of the Holy Ghost within, you see the areas that you need to make improvements and then we'll make such improvements for our spiritual health, all right? So, to the first sign we're looking at is submission to the authority of God's word. So, the first sign and and... I'm not listing these signs in any other priority. So I'm just listing them out as they came to me, okay? So the first sign we're looking at is submission to the authority of God's word. Meaning a healthy spirit is submitted to the authority of God's word or to the government of God's word, however you would like to put it. Submitted to the authority of God's word. Now, let us start off, I, I want to start off by just saying some things and we'll go into scripture. Number one is that accuracy before God is not a measure of how much gifts you are able to demonstrate. That does not represent your accuracy. Accuracy before God is not a measure of how much seeds you are able to sow into God's kingdom or you're able to give for God's cause or give to your church. How much money you're able to give to your, to your church. That is not how accuracy before God is measured. Accuracy before God is not measured by how much time you spend in church. And I know this, this may sound ironic, but this is true. That the fact you spend seven hours in church doesn't mean you are accurate before God. Neither does the fact that you, you are committed to a service unit or to a department in church, um, that does not re reflect your accuracy before God. Accuracy before God is measured by how much of our lives are consistent with the truth. So how much of our lives are consistent with the truth is the true measure of accuracy before God. Now, someone may, may stay in church for, let's assume your church runs four services, for instance, and this person is in church from the first service to the last service and let's say total of eight hours or even 10 hours in church. This does not make the person accurate if aspects of the person's life is out of, al of alignment with the truth. Okay. Um, someone may give so much money to, to a church or to charity or for a good cause, but may, may still have aspects of their life out of alignment with the truth. So the real measure of Accuracy is how our lives are aligned with the truth. And the question here is, then is, what is the truth? All right. And especially because we're in a day and age where there people want to um, sponsor several versions of, of truth that they have termed after themselves. So my truth, her truth, your truth, his truth, their truth. And then there's so many versions of truth by worldly standards. No, we need to define what truth is. John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus Christ himself said, sanctify them by the truth. 
he now goes on to say, thy word is truth or your word is truth. So truth from God's perspective can only be found from the word of God. You can only source truth from God's word, meaning anything that is not in keeping with the word of God is not the truth. Anything that is not in keeping with God's word, with what God has said, is a lie. And this is a very, very important thing to establish because when we talk about stability, you need an anchor. All right. An anchor keeps you from being in from being unstable, rather. And think of a ship at a harbor, right? Where the waves of the waves of the sea, you know, is really going high. When a ship goes to the harbor, it anchors itself to, to something. It um the pilot, the the um the sail, the captain rather of the ship either drops a heavy anchor to the bottom of the ground to keep it or, you know, ties a rope or, you know, some thick ropes to um, something that is very stable. And the purpose of this is so that as the waves go underneath the sea, the ship, the waves don't carry the ship away. And this is what stability does to us. Stability keeps us from being tossed to and fro. And our stability anchor is the word of God and that is the truth. So when the devil comes to Eve to say did God really say you know you, you should eat from this tree if if God knew that if you eat from this tree your eyes will be open. Now the Jesus Christ lets us know that the the devil is the father of lies and when he lies he speaks his native language. So anything the devil says you know is a lie. Any suggestion he's trying to pro promote is a lie. But think about this. When Eve ate the um, fruit from the garden, her eyes were open, quote and unquote, and she, you know, began to know good between good and evil. So my question to you is, was that not exactly what the devil said? So if that is what happened, how is it that the devil lied? Sit back and think about this. That devil said to Eve that your eyes will be open, you know between good and evil, and that's exactly what happened. So how come we still call that a lie if it is what exactly happened? And this is where you now have to probe your definition of truth. Definition of truth is its consistency with what God said, not in the factual experience of it. So somebody may be going through a may be going through sickness right now, and the Bible tells you you are healed, but your experience tells you you are sick. And I'm here to tell you that your experience is a lie with respect to the truth of God's word. And you must learn to, and what we do with, with lies is we refute it. Okay. So back to the Genesis story. Now, when devil said you, you, if you eat this fruit, your eyes will open and all of that. And that exactly happened. What he said happened, but it was a lie from God's perspective, meaning the experience that his information sponsored was not consistent with what God had said. So that was not what God wanted the um, humanity to experience. The knowledge of good and evil was not what God had prepared for us, right? And so when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and they had that experience, they lived an alternate reality from the truth. And so their life from that, hence, from that moment henceforth was a lie compared to the truth of God's word. So every time God, every time the devil speaks, no matter how factual his, his suggestions are, they are still a lie. So the, you someone doesn't have money in their bank account and they read from God's word that they've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. They've been blessed with everything that pertains to life and godliness. What the devil now comes to do is to tell them, uh -uh, if you've been blessed, why don't you have money? And so they want, the devil tempts them to believe the lie that he's sponsoring using the facts of their experience as an evidence, whereas this person should look into the word of God and uphold the truth in his life, okay? So I said this to just explain to us that accuracy is a measure of how much of our lives are aligned with God's word and then the source of singular source of truth is the word of God. Now look at, let's go to Genesis chapter three. Uh, since we already started quoting um, referencing that scripture. So Genesis chapter three, 
and verse 1. We'll just read verse 1. I want to explain something to us. I want to read from the New Living Translation, NLT. Okay? Because you see, one of the... And you know, we're talking about alignment with God's word, submitting to the authority of God's word. One of the first things the enemy would do to tempt your tempt you or to take you out of alignment is to question your submission to God's word. And let's look at, at a very practical in, um, scenario that we already referenced. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of the tree of you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, I want to read this from New Living Translation. I just read the uh, New King James Version. Now, New Living Translation says, um, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And you know, the enemy came with a question to question the this woman's submission because it, you know the enemy came and essentially taunted the woman and said look at you you can do so many things you can eat from so many trees any of these trees why are you subjecting yourself to just a few did god really say and this is a question of conviction that many times in our lives the devil would come and ask us this same question did god really say and he doesn't ask, he asks it in different ways. He asks it in the form of a, of a young lady who is trying to get promotion at work. And then her boss says, you, if you don't sleep with me, I'm not, you're not getting this promotion. And she begins to think, did God really say I cannot do this? Or a young man who is started, who has started business, you know, his business seems to be struggling, and there's an opportunity in quotes. That has come to him, but all he needs to do is to just, you know, manipulate some figures and his business would, would make the highest turnover they've, they've never even made. And then he's asking, the devil is asking him through this situation, did God really say you cannot do this? And many times the enemy comes in this form to question our submission to the authority of God's word. Did God really say you should not have sex before you get married? Because your body, I mean, you're not the only one now. Are you the one that killed Jesus? Everybody is doing it. Even look at even that brother in church. Let me tell you, he didn't you see the way he says, ah, but you know, before I would. And then the enemy comes to ask this question in several ways. Did God really say? And all the what the enemy is essentially doing is question our loyalty, question our submission question our our allegiance to the authority of God's word and what he's trying to do is get you outside of the covering of God because like we know from the story of Adam and Eve the moment they ate of that fruit and they disobeyed the ordinances of God it made them vulnerable to the experience of the enemy the experience that the enemy sponsored so it made them vulnerable and exposed to sin and death. And from then, henceforth, they were under the influence of the enemy. And what the devil does when he questions our submission to God's word is to get us out of our safety zone. Because you see, the word of God is given to us as a pres preservative or as a, pre um, um, as a safe house, all right? A safe house from military you know perspective now a safe house a safe house is that area that usually hidden that if there is trouble in the land the soldiers typically in another country now in a foreign country the soldiers can go into that safe house that nobody knows and it is well secured military secured so the attack of the enemy cannot get there and that is what the word of god represents submitting to the authority of god's word represents that safe house for us when you're in that safe house, the enemy cannot get you. He tries, he tries hard, but he cannot reach you. So he looks to himself and says, you know what? I need to get this person out of this safe house. Mm? And if I can get this person out of the safe house, then I can attack the person. So the enemy begins to lure, lure you or to bring temptation. 
All right, let's say from the window of your safe house, the enemy looks at you. He knows he cannot touch you. He can see you inside the safe house, but he cannot access your life. He cannot touch you. So what he does is from maybe from that window, he begins to, you know, tempt you with, let's say, blueberries or tempt you with some ice cream or tempt you with something um, interesting that you like. And his goal is to make you come out of the safe house to go and get that interesting thing that he's dangling in front of you. And it, once he can get you out of the safe house, then he can attack you. And this is what the enemy does. When he comes to say to you, did God really say he's trying to get you out of the safe house so that you would leave the authority of God's word, you leave the covering of God's word, and then act in disobedience and you enter his territory. So God has given us his word for several reasons, among which is to preserve us and to keep us. And a healthy spirit is submitted to the authority of God's word. That means a healthy spirit, if God says A is A, then A is A. You know, um, Abraham, God spoke to Abraham at his old age and he said to him, circumcise yourself. And the Bible says that same day, he circumcised himself. He circumcised his son, um, Ishmael, who was 13 years old at that time. And he circumcised everybody. This is... This is submission to the word of God, submission to the dictates of God, all right? And when we read scriptures, we have to submit ourselves to the authority of God's word. Don't wait until you have a spectacular experience, you dream a dream, or a prophet comes to speak to you, or you see a vision before you align your life. No, in fact, let me tell you, your spectacular encounters would be weak if you are not first and foremost submitted to the authority of God's word and your spectacular encounters will be counterfeit if your life has not been submitted first of all to the written word of God. Okay. Now I have jumped so many things that I, I wanted to say here, but that's fine. Um, so let me just go back to my notes and, and share with us. Remember before we read my notes, remember Matthew chapter four, Okay, no, I'll come to that, all right? So I said here, one of the first points of a attack the enemy launches is our alignment with what God says. Listen, if you ever find yourself in a position to compromise the word of God, let me tell you what the enemy is trying to do. He's trying to get you out of your safety zone and he knows that there's something massive from God that is coming your way and he wants to, he wants to distract you uh, or take you out of position so that you do not experience it. But I'm telling you that your victory comes from your positioning under the word of God. All right? So stay in that place. Um, I said here that, you know, the phrase, did God really say, is the beginning of compromise. That's where the enemy begins to tempt you to question what the word of God says. Um, when the word of God says, oh, do not commit adultery, do not commit fornication, we now begin to ask, did God really say we should not commit fornication? What is fornication? Fornication does not mean if I if we both, if both of us agree to have sex, you know, that means it's not fornication. And people begin to redefine it. But that is the enemy trying to get people out of alignment with God's word. So I said here that the word of God stipulates the boundaries of God's commitment to a man. All right. And when I say man, I mean man and woman in this case. So the word of God stipulates the boundaries of God's committed commitment to a man. Listen to me. God loves the whole world, but he's not committed to the whole world. He's committed to his word. Okay. And everybody who submits themselves to the boundaries of God's word finds God's commitment in expression in their lives. All right. Finds God's commitment being expressed in their lives. So, like I said, God loves the whole world. He sent his son to die for the whole world. But he's not committed to everybody in the world, meaning you cannot get him to commit to your life just like that. The reason why God will commit to your life is because you yourself have committed your life to God's word. And God is committed to his word. So your life is captured within the experiences of God's word. And this is super important. You can see God, God does not take sides. God himself is the side. You are either on God's side or you are not on God's side. And, and this was the lesson that God wanted to teach Joshua 
just before they entered the um just before they went to to capture the city of Jericho Joshua met this personality called the angel of the lord all right and he he looked at the personality and said who are you and the person told him remove your shoes for where you are standing is a holy ground and the person began to educate Joshua on what to do Joshua came as a warrior trying to challenge him and he says no in fact Joshua asks and this is where I'm going to Joshua asks him and says on whose side are you you know so Joshua was expecting to the, this person who who represented God all right, to say, oh, I'm on the side of Israelites or I'm on the side of Jericho. No, 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 no. Joshua met a king and this king who is God himself says, I am not on anybody's side. I am, I am my side. I am the side on, on my own. And we need to come to this realization that yes, God loves you, but he does not bend his standards for you. He's only committed to the operations that are captured within his word. And so the best you can do for your life is to submit yourself to his word because his commitment is to his word. It is not to your life. The only reason why God will be committed to your life is that your life is committed to the word of God. So someone can, a Christian actually can, can say to himself, oh, well, I can do what I want, you know, because God loves me. And I look at the person, I tell you, you are joking because yes, you have been born again. God has paid for your, for your life. But you cannot do anything you want and expect to end God's commitment. No, God is only committed to that which his word has this, um, defined. So like I said here, the word of God stipulates the boundaries of God's commitment to a man. God cannot be committed to you outside the framework of his word. So God cannot devote himself to you outside what his word has stayed. So the, again, the best thing you can do is submit yourself to the word of God. I said here also that his, the word of God is the expression of God's authority. Okay. Remember the, um, Peter, Peter and his fellow, you know, friends, they had toiled all night and they caught nothing. And Jesus Christ came to them and said, cast your net on the right side. And Peter said, we've toiled, toiled all night, nevertheless at thy word. So the word of God is the expression of God's authority. And we know the outcome of that. They caught so much fish that their net began to break. They were almost sinking. They had to call for help. That is because the word of God captures the authority of God, expresses the authority of God. And what this means is that the authority of God, see, the authority of God has a boundary. And the boundary of God's authority is the word of God. Meaning, if you do anything outside of the allowance of God's word, you cannot expect God's authority to back you up. You know, the Bible says that his, um, the disciples went to preach the, preach the word and God confirmed the word with signs and wonders. God did not confirm the anointing. Listen to me. God did not confirm their gifts. God confirmed his word. God is not in the business of confirming your anointing or your gift or your wishes. He is in the business of confirming his word because his word defines the boundaries of his authority. So God will not do outside of what his word stipulates. And what this means consequently is that once you step outside of the covering or, or the authority of God's word, then God's authority doesn't cover you. Once you step outside the boundaries of God's word, God's authority doesn't cover you and you are now in the danger zone where the enemy can do with you as he pleases because you are out of alignment with the word of God. And listen, what I'm teaching you tonight is very fundamental, but very powerful. It is a way of keeping you sane and keeping you outside of the reach of the devil. Because once the enemy cannot find a cause for accusation in your life, the enemy doesn't have substantial reason to attack you. And if he ever dares attack you with one word, you can rebuke him because your life is in alignment with the word of God. So stay with the word of God. Okay. Matthew chapter four. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter four, verse, we'll read verse four, verse seven and verse 10. Um, okay. Let me, let me just read it from the new King James version. Matthew chapter four. I, I do hope you are getting blessed. Please, if you are getting blessed, just drop a comment um, whatever platform you're joining in, let me know you are following. If you're getting blessed, just type, I am blessed or I'm following. Let me know we are together. All right, Matthew chapter four, 
verse 4, we'll read verse 4 and then skip to verse 7 and 10. Where I just want to show you something. We know this encounter is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness when the devil came to tempt Jesus Christ in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4 verse 4 says, But he answered and said, that this is Jesus, he answered and said, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, and he goes on and on. Look at what verse 7 says. Jesus said to him, it is written again. So he answered in verse 4, it is written. He answered in verse 7, it is written. Uh, look at verse 10. Um, then Jesus said to him, away with me, Satan, for it is written. My challenge to you today is how much of your life is in alignment with it is written. How much of what you do on a daily basis is in alignment with it is written. And the reason why Jesus could resist the devil was not only because Jesus knew what was written, but he, he was submitted to what was written. You know, later on, towards when he was just was going to leave the earth, he said that the evil one is coming, but he finds nothing in me. Meaning my life is so submitted that there is nothing written, um, there's nothing the enemy can find in me that pertains to him. So I want, I'm saying this to you that if you are going to effectively resist the devil, it's not your knowledge, head knowledge of scripture that is sufficient. The fact you can quote, no weapon formed against me shall prosper, it doesn't mean a weapon formed against you will not prosper. The reason why weapons formed against you will not prosper is because you are submitted to the written word. And so when you declare the written word, it is powerful in your life. Let me say this to you. The only time the written word will be powerful in your mouth is when you are submitted to the written word. Do you get me? So it's not a game of quoting scripture. Anybody can quote scripture. Any, any unbeliever can quote the scripture. But the scripture is only powerful in the mouth of the believer who has submitted to that scripture. All right? So this is the first thing I want us to establish. The first sign of a healthy spirit is that you are submitted to the word of God. You are submitted to the word of God. Um, I'll just read two, two scriptures quickly and we'll move to the next point. Second Timothy chapter three. Hmm. Okay, second Timothy chapter three, verse 15 to 17. And please get this very well. Second Timothy chapter three. Verse 15 to verse 17, all right? Um, from the, I, I just want to go ahead and read the Passion Translation. Uh, that's TPT. Okay, TPT says here that, remember what you were taught from your childhood, the Holy Scrolls or the Holy Scriptures, which can impart you to wisdom, to experience everlasting life. King James says, um, Remember the scriptures, you know, um, that are able to make you wise. And this is a topic for another day, but the scriptures can make you wise. And let me tell you what wisdom translates to. The, there was a time when Jesus Christ did miracles and these people looked at him and said, by what wisdom has this mighty science be, been done? So mighty signs are credited to wisdom and wisdom is, at, is accessed by the word of God. All right, but let's proceed. Um, it says, which can impart you to wisdom, to experience everlasting life through faith of Jesus, the anointed one. Verse 16 says, God has transmitted his very substance into every scripture, for it is God breathed. All right. It will empower you by its instruction and correction, giving you the strength to take the right direction and lead you into deeper path of godliness. Then you will be God's servant, fully mature and perfectly prepared to fulfill any assignment God gives you. I want to emphasize the phrase fully mature and perfectly prepared. The word of God brings us to a place of maturity. As we consistently submit to God's word, we enter the place of maturity. Okay, I need to run. Second scripture um, on this note is from Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Paul said, this was a parting, parting um, conversation Parting words was speaking to these people and he said, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. So the word of God is able to build you up. The people that are built up are not people that quote 
or have memorized the scripture. The people that are built up are people that have submitted themselves to the scriptures they are quoting. And please let this sink in your heart. The fact you know, the fact you or somebody knows what the Bible says in itself doesn't make you mature. It is your submission to what the Bible says, your consistent submission to what the Bible says that makes you mature. All right. So Paul said, I commend you. Uh, if you read that scripture in other translations, it says, I, I put you under the authority of God's word. I, or I submit you under the supervision of God's word. And the, the idea it communicates is a, you know, when a, a, a parent takes their child to a boarding school and they submit their child under the care of the boarding house master or mistress, as the case may be. So that in the absence of the parents, the boarding house mistress is the parent supervising that child. It's the same way Paul says, I commend you, I submit you under the authority of God's word. And it has the ability to build you up and give you a place among those that are mature. All right. So the first sign of a healthy spirit and this, see, you, listen, when we are going to look at all of this, right, none of these signs even talk about speaking in tongues because somebody can speak in tongues and yet not be submitted to the word of God. So the first sign of a healthy spirit is submission to the word of God, submission to what God says, submission to his dictates, submission to his counsel, submission to his law. And the first point of knowledge for this law is his written word, okay? So check yourself, check your life. Um, are you submitted to God's word? Let this be a question you're, you're asking yourself and you're, you're answering in all honesty. And when you meet somebody who is trying to be, you know, super spiritual and act all deep, what you should look out for in their lives is, is this person's life submitted to the word of God? I know they are sharing deep rema, leave it. Look at their life. Are they themselves submitted to God's word? That will be your first point of discernment. Okay. So number two, quickly, and this we wouldn't spend time on this. Number two sign of a healthy spirit is a spirit, a healthy spirit is quick to repent. All right. A healthy spirit is quick to repent. A healthy spirit is quick to repent. And let's start, I, I, you know, when we talk about repentance, um, some people believe that, oh no, repentance, a Christian doesn't need to repent. You, you repent only once. Once you repented, that's all. You don't need to repent. And that is not true. Yes, I agree that you're, you're only giving your life to Christ once, all right? You're not giving your life to Christ every single day. Um, in that sense, yes, you only give your life to Christ once. But in the same context of repentance, in fact, and I keep I say this often that a believer will repent a, more times than an unbeliever, because for for an unbeliever, their repentance is just one repentance, you know, to salvation or coming into Christ. But for a believer, their repentance will be so many times as often as the Holy Ghost flats an area that you need to repent, you have to repent. Okay. So let's start from a scripture in the New Testament. Um, to to in fact, the scriptures we we'll read will be in the New Testament, actually, just so that in case someone says, "Well, uh, repentance is an Old Testament doctrine," we would look at repentance from the New Testament. So Revelation chapter three, verse nineteen. Revelation chapter three, verse nineteen. Um, this was Jesus Christ Himself. Okay, so the authority we have. Is that one? This is recorded in the Bible. Number two, this is in the New Testament. Number three, this is Jesus Christ Himself speaking. So listen to this. It was uh, He was addressing um, the church in in Laodicea, okay. And look at what He said after saying several things. But look at what He said in verse nineteen. He says, "As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten." And this, we we spoke about this last week that there's a chastisement of God. There's the rebuke of God. You cannot live your life as a Christian without the Holy Ghost rebuking you. God will keep on re rebuking you as often as he needs to because he loves you. It is one of the expressions of love. I know many times we, we when we think of God's love or when we try to tell people that God loves us, we tell, we share testimonies of the 
good things, you know, the material things that God has given us. So someone says, oh, God gave me a job and I just knew God loves me. And that is correct. But that is not only the expression of God's love. Part of the expression of God's love is in a rebuke. So when God rebukes you, you know God loves you. So let's continue. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Look at the next thing Jesus Christ said. He said, therefore be zealous and repent. So he was talking to these people and says, I, re I rebuked you on this matter. I want you to be zealous and repent. So one of the ways we know people's zeal for God, and which is which translates to their spiritual health, is that they are quick to repent. When God flags an area in their life that he needs them to make adjustments, and that's what repentance means. Repentance means making adjustments, turning around or turning back or changing the course of your, your direction. One of the ways we know people are healthy in their spirits is that whenever God raises an area in their life that they need to change course or make a, 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 a total a drastic change in, they are quick to repent. And for some people, they need to repent in their relationships. Okay, I know today is Valentine's Day. So uh, this might not be the sweetest Valentine's Day message you hear, but some people need to make a change of course in their relationship. All right, because God has flagged to them that this relationship is not of me. Not because the person is, is bad or not, but because God says this relationship, I did not start it. You need to change this course. You need to repent. For some, it might be the way you speak to people or whatever it is, but a healthy spirit is one who is quick to repent. And several times on your journey with God, God will flag areas that you need to repent. In fact, for sometimes it might be the way you spoke to your husband or the way you spoke to your wife or the way you spoke to a junior colleague, the way you spoke to a driver. God will say, mm, that thing, that the way he spoke is not right. And repentance could mean go and apologize to that person. And we're like, hey, God, after I've bragged, after I've made mouth, I am the boss. And God says, go and repent. And I or go and apologize rather. And if you don't apologize, nobody would even know. But God, between you and God, your relationship, the, the texture of your relationship with God, with God will be affected. So repentance is one of the healthy signs of, of a buoyant spirit. Okay. He says, be, Jesus says, be zealous and repent. You can't be zealous and, and fold you. And you can't, you can't come to, to church in a moment of prayer and you're blasting in tongues. Your, your voice is the loudest. You are praying. When you are worshiping, you are on your knees. You are crying, tears all over you. And you're saying, God, I love you. I love you. Oh my God. I love you. And you, you, have, you have soaked two hand towels with your tears. But the thing that God has asked you to repent, you have not repented. There is, you cannot impress God with your tears or with the velocity of your prayer. A true heart for God is a heart that is quick to repent. And this is also one of the signs. So I want you to think by the help of the Holy Spirit and ask yourself, what area has God asked me to repent that I have not yet repented? And don't think of repentance as a as a as something big and out of the box. No, it simply means what area has God been nudging your heart on that you need to change that you have not yet made that change. All right. That is where you need to make repentance. That is the area you need to um, repent on. Okay. Um, and let's look at one last scripture um, for today and we'll close. Still on this repentance matter. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. Verse 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 to verse 10. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 to verse 10. Okay, so this is what the Bible says. I want to read from the Passion Translation, all right, just um, so to give us a, a dimension to this. All right, so it says, now I am overjoyed. Uh, it says, now I am overjoyed, not because I made you sad, um, but because your grief led you to a deep repentance. So there's a kind of grief that leads to deep repentance. There's kind of sorrow that leads to deep repentance. Let, let's continue. It says, you experience godly sorrow. And this is what I want to talk about. There's such a sorrow called godly sorrow. That moment where in your heart you... You do something and suddenly your spirit just, you are, you are sad about what you've done. 
in your spirit. Other people may not even see anything wrong with it. Let's say you went to buy food from an eatery, okay, and this person was just delaying you, delaying you, and maybe the person was even being rude to you, and you, you decided to lash out at the person. And after you did that, you became sad in your spirit. That is godly sorrow, a sorrow that is inspired by God living inside of you. And every believer must be sensitive enough to know when the spirit of God is grieving in their spirit. And how that feels like is, is sorrow. You are just sad about something, something that you have done or something that has occurred. You are sad about it. Again, other people may not say anything wrong with it. Let's say you are the, you are the owner of your business or you are, you are the manager at your place of work. And you, you know, someone, your a, a colleague that is under you in terms of hierarchy, um, was misbehaving, and then you just shouted at the person, and everybody said it's justifiable. But in your heart, the Holy Ghost is nudging you and says that's wrong, and you just feel this godly sorrow. That's what we're talking about. And look at what he says: you experience godly sorrow, and as God intended, it brought about gain for you, not loss so that no harm has been done by you. So if you if you yield to the godly sorrow, it will bring gain in your life. And look at how it brings gain. Verse 10, God designed us, and this is very powerful. God designed us to feel remorse over sin in order to produce repentance that leads to victory. Let me read that again. God designed us to feel remorse over sin in order to produce repentance that leads to victory. So the moment a believer is no longer feeling remorse over sin, their heart is no longer heavy over that matter. And when we say sin, we're not talking about the traditional act, um, sin that we call, oh, fornication, stealing, lying. Mm -mm. Yes, those ones are part of it, but that's it's, it's beyond just those scope. Sin here represents you falling below the mark or below the standard that God has set for you. So in my, like my example, if God's expectation of you is not to, is to be able to be self-controlled and not lash out at people, when you lash out, it becomes, <clears throat> it becomes sin in the sense that you are falling below the mark, below the standard that God is upholding you to. So it says that God designed us to feel that sense of remorse whenever we fall below that, his standard. And if a believer no longer feels that sense of remorse, there's problem, oh, listen to me, there's problem. That believer has to go and admit himself or herself in the intensive care of God's unit so that their heart can be worked upon. There needs to be a heart surgery. God needs to do a, a work on their heart, a surgical work on their heart. The moment a believer stops feeling remorse for sin, there is a big problem. And this is one of the ways you know if your, your, if your work with God is healthy or not. If you still feel remorse for sin, then you know you're, you're still healthy and you can make corrections. But the moment certain actions that were seen used to some years, some, some months or weeks ago, you were considered sin to you. And all of a sudden, those actions no longer make you make you feel remorseful. Then you are not in a healthy state. And you need to go to the to Jesus Hospital, be admitted in intensive care unit, put yourself on IV line and let there be a surgical work on your heart. Do you understand? So this is one of the signs of a healthy spirit, that godly remorse. So the Bible says, God designed us to feel remorse over sin in order to produce repentance. So when you feel that remorse, God is trying to get you to repent. And that is God's indication. If you ignore that remorse, the first day, second day, the second week, a time will come where you stop feeling remorse about that action. And you would think everything is okay, but no, everything is not okay. If you still, if you don't repent and you allow time just go and you stop feeling remorse about it, your heart has become hardened, especially to that particular matter. And once your heart is hardened, it becomes hardened to God. You, it will be difficult to hear God and you're, you are not in a good spiritual state. All right? So a healthy heart feels remorse over, over actions that are below the standard God has set for them. And look at the next thing I want to say, because this is powerful. I feel so stirred up in my spirit on this point. It says that this leaves us with no regrets. 
So the godly remorse you feel doesn't leave you with regret. And this is where we have to apply spiritual wisdom because there is a thin line between feeling guilty and feeling remorseful. So godly remorse and guilt sometimes can be confused. And how do we know the difference between godly remorse and guilt? Number one is, and major difference is that there is no regrets. You see, when the Holy Ghost convicts you, he doesn't condemn you. But when the devil brings guilt, his purpose of bringing guilt is to condemn you and to bring a lot of regrets and to, to give you the impression that that is the end of your life. But when the Holy Ghost convicts you and you feel that godly remorse, there is no, the regret is taken out of it. You know you've done wrong, but you're not wallowing in regret saying, oh, I wish I did not do this. Oh, my life has come to an end. Because regret means that there is no, nothing else for you in the future. So that is the end of your life or that's the end of that situation for you. But when God brings godly remorse in your heart, you don't feel like that's the end of your life. And the Holy Ghost does not condemn you to condemn you and brings you to an end. He shows you a way out. So this is how you know the difference between godly remorse and devilish guilt. So it says, this leaves us with no regrets, but the sorrow of the world works death. So like I said, the sorrow of the world, all right, works death. And the difference between the sorrow of God, that's godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is that godly sor sorrow leads to repentance worldly sorrow leads to death meaning that it brings an end to your life but that's not what we're talking about we're talking about godly sorrow and why i had to make this difference for us is so that when the enemy tries to take advantage of our, the softness of our hearts to introduce guilt we can know how to address the guilt sorry the the um the feelings of of, of guilt that the enemy sponsors and we know how to separate it from godly from godly sorrow okay all right so yeah this is it for today these two things don't forget the first one we said is a healthy spirit is submitted to the authority of god's word and number two a healthy spirit is quick to repent all right so we'll stop here and i would like to take questions if there are any if there are any questions from anyone on mixeller or on zoom please type in your questions right away and we'll take it in about two minutes okay if we if we do have any questions we'll take that right away Okay. All right. I do not see any questions yet. So I, I assume that we perfectly understood uh, what I thought. Okay. Um, okay. So before we go, what you do for me is in the comment section, just type out one thing you learned today. One thing you learned today, um, type it out in the comment section just before we go. All right. One thing you have learned today, please type it out in the comment section before we go. Okay. Let us close with a word of prayer. Are together father in the name of jesus christ we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word to share your word to learn from you we ask that your word takes root in our hearts in the name of jesus christ father we pray that you help us by the lens of your spirit to see and spot the areas in which we are lacking behind uh, if we are not submitted to your word in any area father show it to us and help us to make that adjustment if we have not been quick to repent, oh Lord, have mercy and give us, restore the freshness and tenderness of our hearts before you and help us to repent at every instance that you beckon on us to repent in the name of Jesus Christ. Merciful Lord, we thank you. Be praised and glorified for in Jesus' mighty name we have prayed. Amen. Okay, thank you all for joining me today. God bless you. We will continue this next week. Um, we still have five more things to, to deal with. Uh, so let's see how fast we can take them. But we'll continue 
next week with this same topic, seven signs of a healthy spirit. I believe that you have been blessed. I believe that God has dropped a word in your heart, something for you to meditate on and think about this week. So um, go over these things, right? The recording will be made available to everyone of us on the channel and, you know, through our emails and social media platform as well. God bless you. Do have a wonderful um, evening or remaining part of your day.